Welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. My name is Katie Kessner. And I'm Claire Kaplan. Before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that sometimes the discussions in the podcast can be difficult to hear, especially for survivors of trauma. So we encourage all of you to care for your safety and well-being. You can do that by reaching out for emotional support from family or friends, a counselor if you have one, or a hotline. Additional resources can be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website, and we'll share that address with you at the end of the podcast. Thanks so much. And our our guest today is Rachel. And Rachel, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing your story and your journey. And um, we know you have a, a lot to offer, but we always like to start with kind of a little brief bio so our listeners get to know a little bit about, you know, your general, if you'd like to share age, where you're from, where you grew up, where you are in life, you know, what you do now, that would be awesome. Could you introduce yourself? Sure. So, hey, everyone, I'm Rachel. Um, I live in Toronto, Canada. I'm born and raised. I love the outdoors. So I find me snowboarding in the wintertime, camping in the summertime, and just generally spending time with my family. I'm in HR in construction, and I love every minute of what I do. That's awesome. And do you mind, are you um, in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 70s, 90s? <laughs> I'm in my 30s, actually, yeah. Early 30s. Okay, okay great. So that helps us know. I, I'm already imagining you zooming down the, the slopes and um, staying warm as I am so bad myself at trying to stay warm, even though I've, I've done a little bit of skiing myself. But um, what what brings you to your microphone? What is the story you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, so I guess I'll tell you a bit about, bit, uh, about my background, about how it started with my ex-partner, ex-boyfriend. I um, I played trumpet from the age of 10 to about 20, uh, taking music lessons in between. And so I was very much into music. Music kind of spoke to my soul. It always has. I you know I picked up the instrument uh, really fast. So my friends took me to the ska concert because, you know, being into the brass instruments, ska was a really big deal. And where my dad's from, ska kind of had its like early roots, right? So I met this guy at the... It was a cool, it's a well-known, well-known venue in Toronto. Um, and he was in a ska band. He was playing trumpet and trombone. And I thought that was really cool. And he was tall. He's like over six feet. He's like slim. He's fit. You know, like very, when you're 17, it's your first relationship. It's kind of what you're, um, what you're looking for, right? Not, and so we started talking. And uh, that must have been the summertime, like August. And by September, we were dating. Early on, the abuse uh, started with him. So it was started like very subtly with controlling ways and controlling behavior. And I progressed to physical where he would slap me if I didn't perform um, oral with him. And he would control what I wore so I couldn't wear anything too, too low kai. And, you know, I was in my prime. I was 17. I was looking amazing. And it just progressed to there. Um from September to about the time he's kind of foggy, to be honest. I think it blocked out. It was after March break because I went to Italy for my March break trip and it was before prom. So between March and May was when the assaults happened. Um, I remember, you know, being in my room um, and, you know, I'm trying to find the words. Uh, the door open. I always slept with the door open. Don't know why. It's just a thing. Um, and it, it, he came in my room and he 
was like, oh, kind of like we're fighting. And he like forced himself on top of me. And I just remember after the deed, he said, you know, but I thought you wanted it. And I remember thinking like, I didn't want it. I may have thought I wanted it before. Maybe briefly thinking about it. I know I talked to my mom and asked her like, what do I do if someone's pressuring me? How, how do I react to this? And she was just kind of like, I don't think she took a, she, she may not have thought it was as serious as it was. Um, but I do remember curling over, rolling over to my left side because I was on my bed and crying myself to sleep that night. And it took me a long time to figure out why I had this, um, rash, like not irrational, but it's more of like when I go out somewhere new, I had to find an ex- exit. And I realized that now that was because my brother had, I have older brothers. I love them to death. And we fought. We were very uh, physical siblings um and my brother one time broke down my door one time too many according to my father (laughs) and the door wouldn't lock properly and it took me I think I was an EMDR therapy at my university during emergency counseling where I realized that the reason why I had a fear of the door had to or had to look for a door is because I didn't have a way out and that and that during my assault and I need a way out as an escape in case something goes bad or goes wrong so I go to somewhere new, I'm immediately sizing up where all the exits are. Well, Rachel, before we get to that part, I know Claire has a question really quickly, but I wanted to ask one more thing and then you could answer that one and maybe then we can um, turn it to Claire. So the, the, the guy you met at this concert when you were 17 in Toronto, and he, he was older, the same age. What was... A year younger, actually. So... Yeah, it was a year younger than me. So it was 17, he was 16. Okay, and you live near each other or? Uh, no, good question. Uh, so he actually lives in a, I live in Toronto. Um, he lives in like northwest of the city. So it's about an hour long drive. So in order to see him on weekends, uh, so my, I didn't drive. I, I I honestly didn't get my license so much later. Uh, our parents would be uh, the chauffeurs, so they'd drive us back and forth to each other's house um, each weekend. And that's another thing, too, is he had this thing where he was not, he did not allow me into his bedroom, but he felt no issues in coming into mine. So there's that. Why do you think that was? Yeah, it's really weird. And, it, it, you know, my dad was always like, no men up, no boys upstairs kind of deal, but he always ignored it. Like, I remember he would, in the middle of the night, I, would wake up to like feeling eyes on me and he would um I look at I would look at my bedroom door and he'd be standing in the hallway staring at me or on the stairs staring at me why he did that I don't know I know looking I mean everything's hindsight uh looking back his you know his father was kind of big and pushy and not as you know gentle as I guess I'm used to as my dad being uh, towards his mom was very much like I'm the man, this is it. And the woman has to obey. And I, I noticed that even then, but I even it more pronounces like old thing when I think about it. So that feels really creepy to me to think of him standing in the hallway staring at you that somehow. Mm-hmm. So he was pretty quickly controlling in your relationship and he was pushing you and being abusive to you if you didn't do oral sex with him. Um, what other strategies did he use? I mean, he was physically controlling it was emotionally controlling was he kind of trying to blackmail you emotionally or anything like that did he talk about if you love me x you know that kind of thing i don't recall but i remember 
when we broke up, I said, hey, I'm going to tell your parents. And he said, if you tell my parents you're going to ruin my life. And I remember thinking, well, you already ruined mine, right? Like, my life was already over at that moment. So I know when I was in Italy, he was thinking I was going to hook up with all these Italian men. And he tried, he would threaten to break up with me on that trip. And, you know, this was back in too late late 2000s like texting was expensive back then um so i spent a lot of money texting him trying to calm him down and try to ease his mind so yeah and how how much time elapsed between when you first met and you said you started dating in september and the rape that happened so between september and like after march breaks after march so a few months okay yeah um and then how much longer did you stay with him? The, the, the time period is fuzzy, a little bit fuzzy. Uh, but I remember, I think my prom was in like end of May, early June. So between, so sometime in April, I'd say April, May is when things went sour. Because I remember I bought the prom ticket for him and he's like, oh, we're breaking up and I had to return the prom ticket. I'm so embarrassed. So he broke up with you? Yeah, he broke up with me. But, but that's part's really curious to me, Rachel, because so many survivors, um, they tell us they stay with their perpetrator after the abuse. And you just described lots of different ways in which you now look back and see that he was mani- manipulative, treating you without respect and harming you. So why do you think, um, you know, and you were young, he was young. Um, how, how come in your, you know, more adult mind now, do you, do you think you stayed with him? Honestly, I think two things. I think it boils down to, um, I mean, I can't say I didn't know anybody because I have a really great, my parents are a great example of like what a loving care relationship should be. Um, so part of it was naive, like being naive, um, thinking that this is what is normal as not clearly normal. Another part of it was, uh, insecurity. I was very, I didn't really, I was to use the term blossom until like grades, till grade 11 and grade 12. Um, I had braces. I was awkward, you know, some awkward nerd, as some people say, awkward band geek. So I think I was just looking for someone to love me. And I was willing to accept less than that. Yeah. So let's, I think maybe Claire, now let's talk about where, so when this boyfriend broke up with you, you were still 17 or you'd, you'd become 18? 18, because my birthday's like early in the year, really oh, early. So then what ha- what happened? Um, I was devastated. I thought my world was ending, to be honest. Um, and that's when I said, you know, I'm walking back home from school. He's like, he, he broke up me while I was at school, like four end of fourth period. And I remember trying not to get hold of him. And he just basically uh, called me or texted me and said, we're broken up. And that's it. Um and I didn't tell anyone, to be honest, what happened until months later, uh, at least two months later after the after the breakup. Who was the first person you told? My mom, actually. <laughs> she is. Uh, I always tell my little cousin, your, your mom is your parent first and your best friend second. And my mom is my parent first, but my best friend that I can go to if I know things were happening. She set that boundary where if anything goes wrong, you tell me it can help fix it or help solve it. So I knew she was safe and comfortable to go to. And I just 
we've been really close. I got two brothers. My mom was the only other female in my life. So I immediately told, I told her after two months and she was to this day, like, Oh God, she's the best person I've ever met, to be honest. So what was her response? What was so wonderful about her response? So I sat her down. Uh, this is where I might tear up a little bit. Um, I, I, she had an office. There's this couch. And to this day, this couch has been like the best sleeps of my life I've ever had on this couch. And I sat her down. I'm like, Mom, I need to tell you something. She's like, what? And I'm like, this person assaulted me. And she's like, oh, okay. And uh, she absorbed it. And she was very kind and soothing. And she let me tell her everything that happened. I we must have been on the couch for two hours like, or maybe even longer. And she just said, and to this day, it's our kind of like our mantra in our, in our family. It gets better. Um, 18 years old, didn't believe that. My age now, totally believe that saying, right? And she, we decided that it was, you know, we should tell my siblings and my father. And that was like, telling my mom was a walk in the park. Telling my dad was terrifying um, because what I thought he would react and how he reacted were very different things. What did you expect? And then what actually happened? <laughs> so my dad is from the Caribbean. Um, yeah, I'm super proud of that. So my dad's from Jamaica. Uh, he, so my notion of Jamaican men growing up, like stereotypical Jamaican men, they're very like protective um, especially when it comes to their daughters they're wild in their youth, but when they have their daughters, they're just very protective. Um, and so I was afraid that my dad would get so angry that he'd want to harm him. Um, but that was not what happened. Actually. What happened was, is my, I sat my dad down and I was really scared because, you know, like this big immigrant Jamaican father, like he'd been here since he was 16, but still, you know, still that notion. And I said to him, my dad, I feel dirty. And he said, don't feel dirty. Sex between two consenting adults is a beautiful thing. And that's all I needed to hear. Wow. Rachel, wow. Mm. That's incredible. I know. (laughs) I know. And I'm so relieved, Rachel, because that story is one that every dad needs to hear. What you just said makes makes your father, every father out there, whoever has to hear a powerful story that is just the worst nightmare for most fathers. You, you, you should put him a gold star, you know, thank you for telling us that. Um, and especially with all your brothers, how did they respond differently or similarly? They're both very different. So like one is more like emotionally charged. So like those brothers more emotionally, emotionally charged. The middle brothers kind of turn himself. So he'll talk to us like, no, that was wife. He'll talk to her. Um, so the emotionally charged one was like kind of laughing off saying like, do you want me to go beat him up? Like I'll beat him up for you. Like I have friends. I know where he lives. Like I'll go take care of this. You know, typical brother reaction. And the other one was just kind of quiet, but I find um, in some ways I lean on them depending on what's triggering me or what's making me sad. I lean on them differently now, but they both took it really well. And I think the thing that bothered me to this day is not like I'm, the most that bothered me the most of this day is knowing the fact that I know my parents carry guilt of not being able to protect me. They've, they've expressed it. Um, I know my oldest brother to this day carries guilt of not protecting me because I felt that was his brotherly duty. And that that hurts because not only did you hurt me, 
which hurt the people I love the most. Yes. <clears throat> right. And it happened in your house. So I'm sure they feel especially. Yeah. Right. Um, that sort of guilt for not protecting you. And what is your, what are your thoughts about that? Did you, um, what are your feelings about them feeling protective towards you? You know, I loved it. I remember being, you know, harassed in high school, grade nine, and they came up to school and just even picking me up was enough to deter like anyone older, right? Uh, I, I, I know that they, nothing that they could have done would have stopped this from happening. And I know that. I know that once this person made up their mind, nothing was going to stop them from doing what they did to me. And I know that. I just wish that my siblings and my parents knew that. And I think they kind of do, but I just don't think they kind of fully believe it. Tell us a little bit about what the process you went through after the assault and how it impacted you um, in the short term and the long term, if you can. Okay, so um, long term, uh, short term, uh, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, that kind of stuff. Um, long term diagnosis of bipolar disorder, uh, which triggered it. So with my doctor, he said that there's often a trigger for my mood disorder. And that was it. Uh, so long-term, that's affecting me for the rest of my life, which is kind of what makes me the angry the most. It's like I can get over what happened. To, I can get over what he did to me. I can't really get over having bipolar disorder. Uh, but yeah, like I self-harm. I actually haven't done that in like five or six years. So I end up getting a project semicolon tattoo on my wrist, which keeps me going all the time. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool, Rachel. I like thinking about it. Yeah, that's very cool. Okay, so my mom actually got a matching one. Like, I got mine in February uh, of 2010. My mom got hers in, like, October 20, 2020. 2020, sorry, I'm confusing my dates of 2020. Um, so Project Semicolon is this idea that you – semicolon is used with an author – could have chose to end, end their sentence, but they didn't. So the idea is that you are the author and the sentence, sentence is your life. So it's this idea like, you know, you could have committed suicide, but you chose not to, you chose to keep trucking, right? There's actually a book out there and um, uh, there's quite a few people that I know are that they know this, they know it's common because it's hidden, right? It's very small. And uh, I got mine to cover my self-harm scars. So I don't self-harm again. So if I'm feeling sad, depressed, suicidal, I just look down, look it down. I'm like, I got so much more to live for than this. Right? That's beautiful. You know, Rachel, I was going to say for so many of our listeners, sometimes we hear they'll do, we've not heard that one before, but so many will either wear um, a bracelet or a necklace they can grab all the time or, you know, they'll have um, a, a wristband or something that's a moniker to their commitment to themselves to heal. And I really love what you just described. I almost wish we had a picture of it to share with our listeners. We could probably get one on, on the web because I know that that's a big, a lot of people, I've heard of a lot of people putting it, um, getting a tattoo of a semicolon for that project and for the, those reasons. So I'm glad you spoke of it. I think you're the first guest we've had who's talked about that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rachel. Absolutely. So, so you were diagnosed bipolar, which is a whole nother thing. I mean, that, that's a, uh, something you're really kind of born with, but it, it gets triggered through some kind of trauma, right? So, um, 
what are you doing in terms of your healing process and how do you manage that with this extra layer? Uh, so a lot of journaling. Um, I just actually got out of, I'm, the, I'm like the tail end of a relapse, as I call them, uh, where my meds don't work and they need adjustment. Um, I have medication therapy and I recently reached out to therapists. That I, I've had multiple therapists and I haven't stuck with them, but there's one in particular that I love. So I've just recently reached out to her and I'm hoping to start therapy with her because she does, a, she does CBT therapy and she gives me homework. So it holds me accountable, which is what I need. Um, and a lot of just open discussions, like if I'm happy, I learned if I'm having a bad day, if I'm feeling sad, I text my mom, hey mom, like I'm not having a good day. Or my dad or my friends, and then we'll, they'll talk me through it, right? Um, so that's usually what I, what I do is my co-mechanism is, is medication therapy. A lot of introspection, because you have a bipolar disorder, you have to know yourself in order to know what your triggers are and to sense coming, oncoming relapses. It's, it's forced me to be hyper aware of my body and my senses and how my brain is functioning on a daily basis. Um, I actually have positive affirmations around the house, which are helping. And I love them. Like it was like 30 of them around my, my house. And my parents were like, Oh, you got another one surprise. Um, and that's what I do. So the best thing I found was inconsistently in CBT therapy and medication therapy. Those two combined made a huge difference. Okay, great. Thank you for describing that for us. Now, it's interesting that you were di diagnosed with bipolar because I also know that trauma can mimic bipolar. And I'm wondering how um, how long did it take for you to get diagnosed with that? Because there could be confusion between those two things. And other people might want to hear this. So one thing about... I. <laughs> Honestly, the one thing I've learned about being bipolar is I'm really good at hiding things. I can project an image that I want to project and you will know what's going on. So I hid it from my parents for like two years. Um, I remember thinking I was at the cottage. I was like, I'm going to be like Virginia Woolf. I'm going to tie some rocks to my leg and walk into the lake. And then I was like, mm, maybe we should call my brother and take out the, the town. But it was the self-harm that caught my mom. So I was really good at hiding it. And one day she comes in and just opens the door. Obviously, their door's still broken to this day. And she's like, she calls my doctor, takes my doctor in. Like, doctor's call, takes me in the next day. He made, he's fully blood, but he made the appointment. I walked in my doctor's office and I was like, if you don't give me something, I'm going to kill myself. I need something now. I can't do this. Which started my uh, anti-depressants. Antidepressant, and then I decided... For me, that I wanted my mom to be into every meeting that I had with my doctor and those weekly meetings I was having with my doctor. Because I knew that how I was feeling, um, how I thought I was rejecting wasn't the reality. So in my head, I'm thinking, I'm fine, I'm okay, everyone thinks I'm normal. But outwardly, my mom could see me suffering. So she came to every, every meeting, every appointment that I had for like two years or something. It was a long time. I don't remember exactly. And through that, we got, my doctor has been uh, diagnosing and treating bipolar patients with lithium since the 1970s. So he recognized the signs too, and he maybe did like the diagnostic test, and he's like, yeah, you're classic bipolar. And he put me on that medication. And to be honest, that was about a five-year journey to find the right dose and to get me out of my funk. Well, thank you for describing that. I think that will also be helpful for some of our listeners who um, have of that kind of a diagnosis because it's that is that on top of everything else, you know, and 
Um, so it's it makes things more complex. So what's happening now? What's happening now with you? So I am working in HR and construction field in Toronto. I love my job most days. Uh, I think like any any job, you just some days you hate it, some days you love it. Kind of what the ter- territory is. Um, I'm trying to finish my three year degree because I don't have the because of my mood disorder. I have to in, in working. I have to spend a lot of time on self care every day, every hour, and then I got to account for days where there's off days where my brain's foggy and. Um, so I'm trying to do that, and that's pretty much it. I love my job because I help people. I get, you know, I've had done exit interviews, and people said, you know, you're the first person to give me a chance when it came to like especially new newcomers. That's great. It sounds like you're bringing the compassion you've developed as a as a survivor yourself to the work you do, which is, you know, that you are um, compassionate toward others. And um, <laughs> that's great. Um, HR work is obviously pretty important. So what about your, um, I see that that's part of your healing journey. And what are you doing for your self-care? So I I neglected it. So I relapsed, to be honest. I neglected it. I thought I was doing okay. I had a relapse in 2010, 2020. It was fine. This relapse has been struggling. So my goal is to get back on track with therapy and just spend, like not focus on dating. I haven't really focused on dating in two years, and I kind of really want to keep that mindset because I have my little cousin. She's the light of my life. Like, she keeps me going. Um, I focus on her and family. It's kind of what I'm focusing on at the moment. I do try to journal every day. That doesn't necessarily always happen. They may have, like, a week where I go by where I don't do it. Uh, But just really getting on the therapy bandwagon because I found when I was with this one therapist who is – she's female, so I felt – Obviously, every any therapist I had always had to be, in my opinion, a female. I just feel more comfortable talking about my story. Um, and the homework that she gave, I felt like I made more growth with that. Um, Rachel, you know, we only have time for a few more questions. But one thing I, I hear you saying is you kind of feel like you're a work in progress. And I feel so many of our survivors feel the same. Like we never know. Um what's going to help us the most. But I also think maybe one, one thought I had for you is you're doing things that make you comfortable and still feel sort of safe. Did you ever consider doing something that is bold and daring again to kind of almost, I feel like it's like a snake getting a whole new skin and thinking about the world and incredibly differently as an option. Like we've never talked about that with our survivors, but like in listening to our conversation the last hour, I'm thinking you've been through a ton. You're cognizant and well aware of what you need and you're doing all the smart, comfortable things. But one thing about you that I learned the moment you started talking to us is you are bold and daring you like going fast down cold, freezing snow so- snow slopes. You like like you like being the only girl trumpeter for miles around. You in your when you started out at sixteen before this even happened, right? I heard a Rachel who was a bold, daring, re- rogue, renegade, but still vulnerable because of you know your gender. All of us as women have that. But you are far more fearless 
um, in so many ways and maybe carving back into your fearless, I say carving on purpose, carving a slope down the slope, (laughs) I play on words. Um, I'm just thinking, what would you say to that idea? You know, we've talked about medication, bipolar, but sometimes I think carving out a new slope at age 30 something where you are now means giving your whole new skin, snake skin, a new skin. The first independent thing I ever did, to my, my opinion, that I did, that was outside my comfort zone, was I decided to plan a trip out west about 2018 to go snowboarding. Um, I didn't really have anyone to go with. I was like, I want to do this on my own. Grabbed my cousin and we did it. So my dream is to live out west for two to three years, snowboard, work, snowboard, work. That's what I really want to do. Um, and you know, my family knows about it. They're like, you won't do it. I'm like, let me finish my degree first. Let me get this done, right? Like, I want to do this. That's my goal. Like, one of my goals. Um, just, and to travel more. And just to see. I spent time in Jamaica. It's beautiful there. Absolutely stunning. Uh, but I want to go to Europe and see where my mom came from. She's from northern Greece. She's Macedonian. So I want to see parts of where my roots are roots came from where they, you know, because I know they start in Toronto, but where did they like spring from? Right. So that's been, I want ancestor DNA for that reason. <laughs> that's, that's awesome though. The idea you do have these wonderful plans and, and, you know, the idea of going out West and working at, at, um, you know, a ski resort or that kind of thing. And, and I mean, well, they're desperate for workers right now, <laughs> but, um, but the idea that, that, um, you have all these dreams of traveling and going outside the country and that's really exciting. I think that sounds awesome. I love it. I have, I have this like far-fetched idea because my dad did his ancestor, ancestor DNA uh, test to kind of like traverse the world. He's, he made us very mixed, so mixed and kind of see where his roots came from. Cause I know he's from, and it was a uh, West African roots. So I want to see my, I would love to go there to see where it started and trace it through like, Europe and then to Jamaica and you know um that my my ex-boyfriend actually went to Africa and my dad's like I could have paid for you to go I'm like why did you tell me I would have gone that would be an exciting adventure for sure if I saw an elephant I'd freak out I'd get so excited I'd probably cry (laughs) well you know I I think what I learned from you in our interview Rachel is not only your willingness to you know first of all thank you for sharing your entire journey But I love that we landed on especially two things, that beautiful tattoo that you have now to take with you all the time. It's ever present and a constant, viewable, tangible reminder of your commitment to yourself and, you know, medication be that it might, but that and your, you know, vision of what makes you happy. I think all of us as survivors need to carve out what our, our, you know, be honest. We need to find happiness. We need to find joy. We need to find self-care. We need to find a goal. We need to see ourselves doing something other than sitting in solace for our souls and sadness. And you gave us that, Rachel. You gave us a, a beautiful vision of what that meant to you. Um, so thank you so much uh, for sharing your journey and your story with all of us, our listeners. I'm so grateful. Claire, would you um, like to s- close us out? Sure. So thank you again, Rachel, for sharing your story. And um, 
in particular, um, your dreams at the end um, were really wonderful to hear about. I think that what you've shared has been really, will be really important for our listeners. And we're also grateful to, to all of you who joined us for this episode of Dear Katie Survivor Stories. And if you need support, but don't know where to find it, visit takebackthenight.org for a list of resources and how to reach our legal support hotline. You can also help other survivors by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please consider posting it on your social media and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by an amazing group of volunteers. So thank you to them and thank you listeners for being present today. And always remember, self-care is essential to healing and to thriving. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you again, Rachel. And again, to all the listeners, thank you for joining another episode of Dear Katie. Together, we shatter the silence, we end the violence, and we thrive and survive. Thank you and take care.